Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, Coinos Hermes, always a deep bow to Sophia. And my friends, prepare yourselves for Dharmageddon, a cosmic expansion of love wisdom. This is the best episode of Dangerous Wisdom yet. If I were interviewing the U.S. president, I would not be as excited as I am right now. If I were interviewing a rock star, I wouldn't be as excited as I am right now. Maybe if I were a Swifty and I were going to be interviewing Taylor Swift, I might be as excited as I am now, because our guest today is a rock star of philosophy, a lion of the Dharma, and a unicorn of love wisdom. Our guest is the inimitable Robert A.F. Thurman. Now, not enough people know just how awesome Bob Thurman is. He's 51 flavors of fabulous. He is the Dalai Lama's right-hand man on Turtle Island, a.k.a. America or Akleshika. He has done tremendous work as an exceptional scholar and teacher. He taught at Amherst briefly, then at Columbia for many years, where he not only helped students to learn philosophy, but mentored many new scholars through the process of earning a doctoral degree. Through his work at Tibet House and the Mind and Life Conferences, Menla Retreat, the Treasury of Buddhist Sciences, and other venues and vehicles, he has helped raise awareness about Buddhist philosophy and Tibetan culture. He is also a gifted linguist, becoming fluent in Tibetan in a matter of weeks, though I know he would probably say he continues to learn. He is also fluent in Sanskrit and other languages, and his translations are the go-to translations. If Bob translated it, you should read it, unless it's very uh, above your level, which is okay. Um, if it came from his work as the head of the Treasury of Buddhist Sciences, you should also read it if you can, and we'll put some links in the show notes. Now, I strongly recommend reading his translation of the Vimalakirti Sutra, which is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I have a few of his uh, books here. His book, his translation of the uh, Tibetan Book of Liberation Upon Hearing in the Between, which is mistranslated as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, this is fantastic. The introduction alone is so, so valuable, as uh, as Bob's work always is, really. Um, and it's really, he's a jazz man of words and thinks about <laughs> word choice, not only with the care that any good translator takes, but with the passion for love wisdom, the passion for philosophy that a real philosopher exhibits. And I, I just always delight in his turns of phrase, most recently, the great connection as the translation for Dzogchen. Um, and he can do that because he understands Buddhist philosophy far more intimately, really, than I think most dominant culture philosophers understand the philosophies of the dominant culture. And I say that because he effectively lived for a monk for many years, different accounts in his bi biographical information. Sometimes it's around two or three, and then formally for maybe about two years. And then mm -hmm. he received training from high-level teachers in a curriculum that I would suggest rivals by far the curriculum of philosophical training in the universities of the dominant culture. And as part of that, he even trained in Tibetan medicine, which is holistic and deeply philosophically informed and went on to get a PhD from Harvard. He's translated, authored, or co-authored, oh, I don't know, over two dozen books. I'm going to recommend two others right now. This one is uh, The Central Philosophy of Tibet. This is one that will probably be a little bit over your head, but that's okay. There is online 
Uh, first of all, his, his the introduction in this book is such an incredibly skillful kind of overview of Buddhist philosophy. It's mind-blowing how well he did this. And this oh. is a very difficult text, notorious in, in the Tibetan culture for being challenging. And Bob, Bob just, I mean, I can't say for sure in terms of Tibetan, but it's a beautiful book. Um, and there is a, a free lecture. I think somebody recorded your lectures at Columbia, and there's like maybe eight of them. So you can get some help. I, I'm going to go through those myself. Most recently... Wisdom is bliss. Oh man, this is good. You gotta read this book. If you're new to philosophy at all, read this book. If you're new to Buddhist philosophy, but even if you're experienced, because what I love about this book, it reminded me a little bit of D.T. Suzuki. I was lucky to, or, uh, to not D.T. Suzuki, but Suzuki Roshi, um, because when I, I was lucky enough to read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind before really getting into deep practice of philosophy. And so it's a beautiful book. But then once you study and you read Dogen, who's a great genius, you realize, oh my gosh, there's this whole other layer where Suzuki's genius in part is giving Dogen, giving like this beautiful exposition of Dogen without being like fancy pants about it, not academic. And that was the case with this book. So there's like a double layer if you're experienced with philosophy to see what Bob is doing it's just such a joy. I like slowed down to molasses pace as the book was ending because I didn't want it to end. Okay. So Bob Thurman, welcome to the Dangerous uh, Wisdom Podcast. This is the best. I'm so excited. I'm so surprised. I mean, you're too kind, first of all, but also in a humorous way, and you definitely have studied, and so that really does please me, I have to say. And uh, I, you're very, very kind. And I also, I always admire people who read Central Philosophy of Tibet, because it was, uh, which was originally called Speech of Gold. I know, yeah. You know, because... Um, because it's known as uh, it's known, in, which relates to a Tibetan uh, story about how it was um, how it was written. A vision Zongkhapa had when he wrote that book. He has a silver book and a golden book on on, on the philosophical topic of the deepest one of the centrist what they, what I call the centrist philosophy. And um, so, so I really I respect philosophers who have read it. And I'm dying for philosophers of the what you call the dominant culture to revive philosophy, which has been killed by the pathetically poor philosophy of scientists who think they don't have to be trained in philosophy, which is actually metaphysical philosophy is the foundation of science. And without being trained in it and having a really deep understanding about it, you're going to make a really stupid bunch of interpretations of the wonderful data that modern scientists do get, materialist scientists do get, but then they're completely imprisoned in the dogma of materialism, you know, where they are at the moment, have been for some time, and uh, which is really too bad. In their, in their desperate attempt to escape God and escape the, the, you know, the Inquisition and all this, Bruno, you know, Giordano Bruno's fate and, and Galileo's muzzling and so on, yeah, they they really stuck on uh, on materialism, which is really too bad. But and I have seen a number in my in my fifty years or so of teaching and studying, I have seen a, a number of dominant culture trained philosophers discover Buddhist philosophy, Dharmakirti, Nagarjuna, especially from the Indians, and filtered through the brilliance of many Tibetan devotees and interpreters and advancers of that and suddenly bring metaphysics back to life and realize that it was never really killed off. It was just dogmaed away, you know, by the materialist thing. It's where the, the ridiculous mistake that 
someone like the consilience guy at Harvard and you know the E.O. Wilson yeah, his people make, which is they think that made by by saying that nothingness is the destiny of life and the sort of substratum of life, they are they are making a dogma, mistaking a dogma for a discovery. They think that's a discovered fact or something. They treat they they they, they assure people of it and they treat it as if it was established fact. When actually it's nothing but dogma, since any idiot will tell you, which is always my starting point nowadays, <laughs> that nothing is nothing, and therefore <laughs> you no know, one's going to ever discover it. And that's what yeah. that's the nature is. It's, it's just a concept, you know. Yeah. And it doesn't. It's a referring to what is not there. Where there is, so there's no location. It's not a destination. It's not a substratum. It's it's nothing actually. Yeah. Big, 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 now news flash, you know, nothing is nothing. So no one's going to ever be nothing. No one ever came from nothing. It's not a problem, you know. Well, that's... And uh, that's too bad because, you know, the wonderful acumen and patience and perseverance and yogic lab experience, you could say, that materialist scientists have accumulated over centuries now since the Western Enlightenment uh, is, is uh, if it is put to work, in like the Indian inner science, which is in, in the mind and in the mental zone, you know, instead of just further, further out in the in the galaxies, then they will discover many more marvelous things, you know, and it will, which will be scientific. They're not going to discover some dogma that's going to solve everything, but they're going to discover. They're going to really gain understanding. So, so I'm delighted to speak to you. Who, as I say, I, I think of you as a Greek philosopher. Yeah, and. Uh, and the Greeks were very interactive and, and connected to the Indians through the Persian toll roads. Absolutely. And it isn't like it was all just invented in Greece, you know. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. Did you see that um, the per person who did the beautiful work of kind of forensic scholarship tr showing that it's very, very likely after all that Hume really did have exposure to Buddhist philosophy through, uh, through the Jesuits? It's really, yeah. it's really amazing because all this time we've all thought, you know, you get taught as an undergraduate, oh, look, isn't this interesting how, how similar it is? And meanwhile, it turns out he might have actually um, been exposed to somebody's work who had it studied in detail in Tibet yeah. and, and brought back the whole thing. And it was in a library in France where Hume had spent like a oh, an extended they period. Me. Is this a which, Hume. Which Hume, you know how Hume's bundle theory of the self, people often say, oh, isn't that kind of similar to Buddhist philosophy? You know, the Hume had... Oh, Hume, had the, yes, right, right. David right. Hume, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Did you did. see that the, there was a woman who really traced this down? She did a lot of extraordinary work. In That's right. I haven't read that book. That is really great. That yeah, you, yeah. No, it's really good. Name? What's, her name? What's her name? Oh, good. You know, I actually wanted to get her on the podcast, so I, and I've forgotten. But I, because I contacted her like about a year ago, and just I didn't follow up with it. But anyway, I will I will send it to you, and I'll put a link for people, too. I remember hearing about it, and then yeah. I, did, I forgot to track it down. It's really there. cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I think it's very good, yeah. Yeah, so... So the thing, actually, you brought up several things that I would love to touch on. One of them would be, this came, This I was reminded recently when I was reading your book of Evan Thompson's, I think it's still his most recent, but I know he's coming at it with another book that's actually a little critical of science. But do you know he published a book, your former student, uh, on why I'm not a Buddhist? Uh, well, yeah, but I didn't read it. No, I know. I wasn't going to read it either. I came across it by accident because I just happened to see an interview by him in, in my YouTube feed. And I listened to it, and, you know, like whenever Lopez wrote the book about uh, 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 the Buddha scientist, 
Oh, how he buried him, yeah. Right, and, and right. yeah, right. And I wanted to write a book called, the, you know, The Academic Buddha, you know, which doesn't exist. You know, it's this projection because that's his argument. The scientific Buddha doesn't exist. It's a projection of European I know, consciousness. I know. So Evan picks this up. And so I wanted to ask you, but I figured you wouldn't necessarily read it. And, you know, Evan is obviously a very intelligent guy. And so some of the moves that he's making are almost surprising to me because I think like he's, he, he, it's, it's as if it seems like there's a kind of obvious confusion. But let's just say this. So he he is definitely respecting all the scholarship on what's called Buddhist modernism, and I, I'll ask you to yeah. for everybody to to say what yeah. you, how you see that. And he yeah. uh, also has this term that he uses Buddhist exceptionalism, mm-hmm. and and what he's saying is so in many ways a person who agrees with Evan and there are people who would agree with him would yeah. say, well, you know, Bob Thurman is like the poster child of Buddhist modernism and Buddhist exceptionalism, right? And this this camp wants to say, look, Buddha was not a scientist. Buddhist philosophy is not scientific. And it's right. it's not helpful to say so for various... He, he, Evan, is uh, his intention is supposedly to move the conversation forward. But I just wanted to ask you first, can you tell people, the audience what, how you would explain Buddhist modernism and Buddhist exceptionalism, right. and then then you right. can kind of talk about why you don't think sure. it applies. Sure. Well, well, I don't I don't really go for the Buddhist modernism thing actually, but because uh, I think modernism, people who are think modern are part of the the uh, Western delusion that where we are in the in life, you know, on, on the planet is we are at the summit of human understanding of reality you know we are the we nobody has ever understood reality like we understand it right we we really know better than anybody we and we in the dominant off. culture in particular yeah yeah we yeah. we are the dominant culture of the planet and we we are the leftover of the british empire and the the other european empires and we are my my hearing aid is also complaining to me that it's running out of its battery I'm just while I'm telling this and so we are. We know more than anybody ever did, and we, we, we sort of bury the embarrassing fact that we are briskly and jollily destroying the planet. <laughs> and, but actually, we are mature, so therefore we know that it doesn't really matter that we destroy it, because it's really nothing anyway, you know. And um, once we're all dead. We'll never know, and we'll never know that we ever live because our consciousness will revert to the substratum, which is nothingness. And we are brave existentialists, and we don't mind being nothing. We think it's, a, it's a, in fact, it's liberating and thrilling, and it's liberating us to the extent that we just keep burning the fuels, and we keep polluting everything, and killing anybody who protests, and. Uh, you know, anybody who wants to stay connected to nature. And um, and that'll be that. And anyway, it's it probably the real exceptionalism is we're, we're the only planet on, in the universe where this human accident ever happened. And once it's over, then never mind. You know, <laughs> there is no mind after all, you know. And, and actually, therefore, we are far from being the most wise culture that ever has existed. We are the most insane culture that ever existed no. as a dominant culture, and we're ruining the planet. And besides one Holocaust after another, and we could press all the A-bombs, except I think probably none of them work, because the plutonium has not been renewed every every six biannually, as it's supposed to be. And they probably won't work, you know, yeah, luckily. 
But uh, so so I don't, the the idea that the modern is superior is, in my view, wrong. You know, sure. but there are some aspects that are great, and I think it might turn out to be that case if we can g- take the next step and realize that time is relevant. I mean, relative, just like space. And that uh, there, there may be people who had a higher consciousness a long time ago, who were better scientists, who were better philosophers in, in other cultures, and especially the mother culture that we know about on the planet language-wise is the Indian one, where they have the best, highest wealth and the highest concentration of population and and the most openness of hierarchy in history until the Westerners came in and started conquering it because they became most peaceful. Relatively speaking, so so I don't I just don't get into the whole modern. That's why I didn't bother to read Evan's book, because Evan, like his dad, was very you know Eurocentric, you know, yeah. and Christocentric also, and um, so you know it's like the like the Steinarians, you know, they couldn't take the Theosophical people, so they did Anthroposophy because Jesus had to be superior to. You know Moses and and Yajna um, Valkya and Buddha and Confucius and Lao Tzu, whoever it was, he couldn't be on a on an even plane with the other great people in of humanity. You know, and, and we, you know, I love Toynbee on the other hand, who pointed out in the twentieth century that the most important event of the twentieth century culturally was the meeting of the so called dominant culture, which is the colonial culture of the of the empire with uh, the Buddhist culture, because the Buddhist culture was the most advanced of the Axial Age cultures, which we are still, in a way, part of from the Greco-Judaic period, you know, in the 5th century before the Common Era. And India, the great the great ethical and philosophical and scientific reformers of mid-first mid millennium BCE India were able to get away with more of the Axial Age transformations than any of the other cultures in Eurasia, yeah. you know. And Toynbee comes up with that thesis in, in his 12-volume study of world history and then his summer of that called Mankind and Mother Earth. And he mentioned offhand at Wellesley College in the 1970s before he passed away that that would be ultimately the encounter of this so-called dominant materialist culture, destructive culture, with the ancient, more balanced culture of the mid-first millennium, not particularly only Buddha, but but nowadays I'm very much on His Holiness the Dalai Lama's bandwagon of trying to bring back the full conversation of the Indian Adhyatma Vidya, or inner science, uh, which is the king of the sciences, is the inner science, because the human mind is the best supercomputer that ever was invented and evolved, and human beings are like better than gods because they are smart as the gods, but they are also vulnerable. So they take they take the quest of reality and of meaning, understanding of reality and of meaning more seriously than the gods do, who fritter away their time partying and blissing out, you know. <laughs> and but and, but are also of course very intelligent. Therefore, the gods like enlightened yogis, you know, yeah. and uh, all of them, you know. And not just the Buddhist ones. And and Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, for that matter. He he was an enlightened person. Yeah. And there was no Buddhism when he was there. It was just a quest of reality, which is what science is. Their yeah. claim, those guys, they say, oh, no, science is materialism. 
If you don't have the dogma of materialism, you're not a scientist. Yeah. Well, that's just their that's just their declaration. That's not that's not nature didn't tell them that. Yeah. Nobody told them that, and that's really false anyway. Because they started their observation of nature thinking that nature was God's message to them. People like Newton, um, Bacon, and these people, and uh, and most of the scientists they go to church or synagogue or someplace. And they they have they they you know Einstein says God does not play dice you know and he didn't want to deal in radical uncertainty he couldn't manage relativism which is the higher philosophical open minded way of being which is the true science you know where you really do uh, data and experience and experiment do trump theory and that's that's where that's so so Buddha's philosophy is open minded is like he's like the dialectic of Socrates. Where he says, "Well, yeah, really, in that dogmatic way that you people know things, I don't know anything, you know. But then let's look at what you think you know, and then he will find the absurdities in it, and you'll be liberated from that Themistocles or whoever it was, you know. It's the same thing what Buddha was doing, exactly the same, mm-hmm. and uh, in his highest form, he wasn't saying the dogma of this or the dogma of that. There was no dogma. There was only experience." Finally, you know, and beyond language, beyond mathematics, especially, which is the mystical language of the scientists, because they think because they have made the dogma that reality is only quantities, then their calculation of what the quantities is what their job is. And meanwhile, they're confronting the issue of infinity, which means you'll never get to the end of the calculating. So they've accepted and even reified and deified their pursuit of ever expanding zones of ignorance. Rather than the idea that there might could be an experiential understanding beyond concept and beyond mathematics, beyond everything of the nature of reality, because after all, we are part of reality, all mm-hmm. of us. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just don't even, I mean, that, that to me is just another defense of their privilege. And in the dominant culture, the privilege of the people with salaries, part of endowed institutions, tax deductions, and um, pontificating like high priests and acting like they're the authorities of everything, backing up the governments with the weapons and the research for the weapons and so forth, and then continuing in the ridiculous uh, waste right now. We're we're in an insane position where the combined defense budgets of all the countries on the planet are easily 10 times more than needed to completely have a clean energy system within five years. Totally. If you spend all that money on on improving the energy system and the agricultural system and the healing systems and the educational systems, we would be in paradise, actually, in no time. And all it would mean would be really, truly be democratic, where, where no dictator can take control with their narcissistic bad temper and cause the death of millions and millions of people. It just would not be possible. And then there will be imperfections and problems and many things, but we won't destroy the planet anymore. We won't be killing each other anymore over some patch of uh, patch of desert or something that we're going to irrigate. And, uh, and everything will be fine. And so that shows that we... And also the other thing about materialism is ethics. And the, the problem with Darwin, who was an absolute wonderful, saintly person, I love Darwin, I think he was a great enlightened person himself, but he was also constrained by the... Uh, dogma of materialism, where he could he couldn't really really define the fittest as the connect interconnectedness of beings is what is what really makes for our triumph 
and our shaping of nature into something that into into keeping its beauty and its balance and its life supporting uh, ability and um, and uh, traveling throughout the galaxies mentally uh, in super subtle mental forms, mental and physical, subtle physical forms, which they did in ancient time, and uh, develop our powers of clairvoyance, telepathy, and things like that, that old brains have, actually. It's not even something extraordinary. Uh, and and that's what we should all be doing, and we will be. I'm confident, I'm convinced, actually, that we will be. I'm very optimistic that these these idiots will fail to destroy everything, because finally they will listen to their wives and their daughters, and they will finally decide that it's not worth it slaughtering everybody just to have a bigger territory or some stupid, old-fashioned, ridiculous thing haunted by the past. Yeah. And they will actually be practical and realistic. And I hold out for Dalai Lama's holdout that people will find the sanity that human intelligence wants us to find. You know? mm-hmm. And we will. So, yeah. so I don't even get into that with those guys. They're just defending the West, you know, and they're defending yeah. their own privilege of their position. And, you know, I didn't attack it too much when I, because I was also employed. I had to have a job. I, I was not wealthy and uh, I couldn't just live and hang out, you know, and, and translate all of Tonkapa's books as I would have liked to and, uh, and all of Nagarjuna's work in a way. You see, what's wrong with it? I, 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 I am pleased, I must admit. Usually I don't fall for flattery, but I am pleased when someone appreciates my translation because I really do think that there's a new era of translation that we have to do, deal with. And I'm not perfect in it, but I think I'm the leader in that, which is where we're dealing with this stuff as stuff that is vital to our own lives, that it is vital to our own science, that it is part of surviving, actually. So it's very high priority rather than museum thing of some old thing, some dumb people who are in the past and they didn't have subways, they didn't have A-bombs and they didn't have penicillin or something, you know, and uh, therefore the, nothing they say would be of any use to us because they don't know what's real, you know, because they don't, they don't have, they didn't have dollar bills, you know, like forget about, you know, and even they were con- conquered even by the Europeans and totally subjugated and uh, the Europeans cut the thumbs off of all the cotton weavers in India so they could have mills in 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 England, you know, with their cotton, raw cotton, and uh, so therefore they are inferior, you know, and uh, and that's what the, that's what that whole modernist thing and poor Don Lopez, uh, who is a great guy and very nice, but he's he's you know he's he's been lamenting for forty years that he didn't become a Shakespeare scholar, so he could be like a Harold Bloom or somebody really famous among academics instead of a, a, someone who is a is an expert in a very niche field in the West, very marginal field in the West, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. studies, you know, it's, it's a, and I love to tease them. I tease them all the Buddhist studies people. I love to tease <laughs> that they do Buddhist studies, but the one cardinal, um, you know, like card making them a member of the Buddhist studies community is there's no such thing as a Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. There's no higher consciousness, no enlightened consciousness, not possible. Just the brain, you know, which we're exploring with probes and, uh, you know, and fMRIs and things. And uh, and therefore, they're only studying what weird people who think there was a Buddha, who are doing sort of similar, primitive, pre-modern, naive, um, superstitious things like meditating and uh, doing these things. 
with thinking that somebody got enlightened once, which of course we know is not true because they didn't invent sub subways. They didn't put subways in in uh, Kapilavastu, you know. Yeah. And um, and uh, that's just so so pathetic and to me, so pathetically provincial. I feel you know that I, yeah. I just can't I can't bother with it. And if someone in the future will come along and will actually really study these things and and restore philosophy, philosophy they kill philosophy. Yeah. I even unbelievable. I read. I recently saw this thing. I couldn't believe my ears. It's a YouTube conversation between um, Neil deGrasse Tyson and. Uh, Dawkins, I think, and it's at Howard University, and it's just chit chat, triumphalist chit chat about we're so smart and we can, we're about to figure this and that out, the dark matter and all we got it, blah blah blah. Nothing, nothing, just trivial conversation actually. And then somebody holds up their question and congratulates them in the audience and says, you know, you're right, because they asked him about philosophy and they said, well, philosophy is like finished. It's just like literary criticism and art history and things like that. No, no, no more metaphysics. And ha ha, you know, we don't need that. We're measuring everything in the universe. Neil deGrasse so Tyson said this? Think about how we interpret what we, our data. And then this guy says, you know, it's wonderful to hear this. We're so excited, you know, here at Howard, I think, I think it was Howard, we're just about to abolish the philosophy department. Because it's so useless, and I just—I was really astounded. <laughs> and they, and they, and Neil deGrasse is a beautiful guy. He's a great entertainer. He's the new Carl Sagan. Blah blah. Dawkins was aptly, I thought, uh, characterized by uh, somebody at Harvard as the rich, as the um, uh, oh, the moral majority guy. What was his name? The the, the pre Christian preacher, you know. Who founded Liberty University? Oh, Larry Falwell. Oh, He's wow. the Larry Falwell of the materialists. He says, oh, okay. <laughs> and and these guys are they're celebrating themselves, yeah. and they're then they're encouraging people inside the idea that they don't that the human mind is incapable of of thinking through you a close approximation to reality, and then being able to use that reasoning and that thought to experience reality beyond even the thought, beyond even the conceptualizing thought. Mm -hmm. But bringing conceptualizing thought to that level of inquiry and doubt where it explodes the trivialities and and it comes to a wide open experience of the nature of reality, which yeah. is, of course, the, the, the thing that the Taoists and the Buddhists and the Hindus all did to varying degrees in Asia in the past, far superior to them. And, 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 uh, and then we are killing ourselves with wars and freaking out and bankrupting and having terrible poor people by spending all the money on this machinery of destruction, and um, and yet we think we don't need to. We think that the superior group is the group that conquered the the gentler people, and the gentler people are therefore automatically inferior because they're gentle. Yeah, and that's just total mistake, total confusion. Yeah, and uh, and so I can't really bother about that, you know. If I'm if I'm proud to be a poster child of saying, which is what attracted me to Buddhism was not religion actually, and to the study of, of Buddha was not religion, it was science, and it was the idea that it would be possible to understand the world, right. and to understand your emotions, and to be a yogi of your emotions and your your deep even your ins and transform even your instincts. Mm -hmm. And you know what I had to do as an employed uh, employee of the of the elite. Amherst College and then Columbia University for 51 years, uh, I I had to teach a course like Darwin, Marx, and Freud, 
and you know all three of which which are sort of your 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 passport to modernism and being like a real person you know academically or whatever business in any way all of which tell you that you are unable to understand the world and that you have to therefore just obey somebody else who tells you what to do and and you are automatically enshrined and deified your ignorance is deified actually and you're scared even of yourself freud makes you scared of your unconscious it's going to make you instead of being a nice dr jekyll you're going to be mr hyde you know darwin makes you scared of your genes what they might do to you after you've dumped them wherever it is you never know you know someone will become an eat you and uh, but he's just a nicer than the other two. And then Marx makes you scared because it's your, whatever you think is just whatever class you're in, you know. And it's all hierarchy dominance of other people. But he at least lets you out of it, right? I mean, he's kind of they, at least so that... they completely make you helpless. In short, all three of them, yeah. you end up feeling helpless in the society, in the universe, and afraid of the universe, which is terrorized by your own culture and your own government and your own authorities. And that's what people are. And uh, and they try to and now there are some in our country trying to break out of it, and I think we will succeed actually we're going to we're going to, Ukrainians are going to defeat that lunatic and his 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 employee, the Trump guy who is a Russian asset absolutely money laundering specialist in real estate money laundering specialist since the eighties it's that you don't have to go read the Mueller memo or or have take the phone call he's a hundred percent trying to stop this idea that the hum- that democracy works, that the human being, including the Chinese human beings, love to be free. Confucius loved freedom. He was not into like making fortune cookies or something. That's not his job, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and, um, and we are trying to push the militarized dominant culture into thinking that way. And uh, that's our job. That's why we came and got reborn here, including... A Greek philosopher like you living in Santa Cruz. <laughs> they didn't even bought the creek. Yeah. The mountains. Yeah, with the dragon, dragon and the wind horse. Yeah. And the, so and we, the circle. We were both drawn to um to Buddhist philosophy that really for the same reasons. I mean, it's it's the same thing that you are would be drawn to in Greek philosophy, and there there is that unity that you know that uh, it was natural well, the philosophy. Key thing, key thing is not really Buddhist. In other words, when you say Buddhist, they automatically think it's a religious philosophy, maybe right. something controlled by something you're supposed to have credo and so to believe in. Right. But it's not. It is an open because the, what the what the Buddhist thing is enlightenment is open mindedness. Right. Precisely. And right. therefore. Yeah. Not supposed to believe anything. You're supposed to use doubt until your your mind gets blown right. by the amazing nature of reality, beyond our ability to describe it. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that Buddha, as philosopher, not Buddha. As, that's my point: is that you, you, and I were drawn to Buddha as philosopher, not as uh, yeah. some kind and, of superior. I considered philosopher scientist. Right. Yes. Well, but they would be the same in the dominant culture, right? The scientist and philosopher were always the same. Newton was a natural exactly. philosopher. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's still the case. And the people who are, live under dogma are not really scientists. Right. They're not doing their own Popperian methodology of letting experience trump theory, yeah. which is the key to the Western Enlightenment. And, and the Buddhist translators have it so bad. You know what they do now? The ones who are doing so, they have banned the word enlightenment. 
You can only say awakening, awakening, awake. You know, the Mormons were awakened. You know, you have the the great awakening of Western New York State in the nineteen eighteen thirties. I mean, the the Tibetan the Buddha can mean awakening, and it can mean expanding to omniscience, actually. And the Tibetans did it beautifully. They translated it, sang ge. Sang means to purify sleepy, uh, sleepwalking consciousness to a higher consciousness. And ge means expanding that higher consciousness to know everything necessary for life. Mm. And, uh, and uh, you know, like, like using omniscience, like you would use omnivore, being able in principle to eat anything, everything, you know, it doesn't mean you already ate it all. <laughs> it means that you you're ready to eat it, you know, in some way, you know, because yeah. you 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 are one with it actually, because you and reality are on intimate terms, you know. That's that's the key thing, and you have the energy of all reality behind you to yeah. meet the energy of reality. And uh, so you know, I was I loved him. I mean, Evan was great. He wasn't really ever studied with me. He, his dad was a friend, and he was a friend, and he was a young prodigy type of guy. And uh, in the Lindisfarne community, you know, but they were, you know, they were always Western, Western. Oh, yeah, because uh, Jesus is the only one and the Western science and the West, 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 you know, and they were the dumb. They, they still, although the edge of history of William Thompson originally was a brilliant, wonderful book. But then he just was stuck in his uh, we know better, you know, and of course, he had Dick Baker, who kind of got him pissed off about Buddhism after a while, you know. Yeah, sure, by his, sure. Understand. By him. Yeah. Said, Dick had good sides to him, but he his behavior was not so good because he made the mistake that people make about these Enlightenment-oriented uh, traditions that once you're enlightened, you can do whatever you feel like doing because you can do no wrong, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, yes and no, you know, about that one. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you're interacting with others, they need ethical dealings and interactions, you know, and you can't harm them, actually. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so when you do, then you're showing that you you got stuck in the demon ghost cave, as, they, as Tom Clear's brilliant translation of the Hegegan Roku says, you know, when you when you think you are enlightened, that's just deadly. My, my, my joke about that is, if you go around thinking you're enlightened, then you're forced to fart Chanel number five. And if you can't, then you're just stuck in a terrible vice. <laughs> if it doesn't come out like that, mm-hmm. it's really too bad. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I love them all, so I don't need to put them down. But 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 they really need to question more this so-called dominant culture and how destructive it is. Yeah, you know, I'm really on a board path about it now that I finally just have a pension so I can survive without having to sort of self-censor, you know, yeah. to any extent. I didn't really much do it, but you do do it, you know. And um, and, and that doesn't mean if I hadn't done that, I, I would rather be converting people to Buddhism. Actually, I really appreciate academia, and I have to give the Christians some some credit for that, that the academia, you don't proselytize, you know, and, uh, and if you do religious studies or any kind of thing, you just use reason, and people have to develop critical understanding but they don't do that about themselves, about their dog, of their dog, their materialist dogma, because they can make the weapons, and they, they always were making the weapons. You know, Da Vinci was making fortifications for the, the the people in Milan and so on. You know, and cannons and designing airplanes to bomb people and so forth. 
you know, that's how they had their livelihood. But not by challenging the culture to the extent of how it should be challenged, you know. But that's very serious now. We're really at an end game if we care about our grandchildren, even children, and if you're younger, even yourself, then we have to really stand. And, you know, this book, there was a wonderful little book that some uh, Harvard scientist and some other sociologist or historian or somebody, they wrote a joint thing, a very short pamphlet-like book, but it had a wide circulation for a little while, which is written as if it was at the end of the 21st century, I think, or 20th century, and when things were really sinking, you know, and billions had died, and, you know, the planet was really under threat, sure, threat more, and so on. And it was an analysis of why the scientists couldn't change the minds of the politicians and the corporate people uh, in this turn of the 20th to 21st 20th to 21st century, how they couldn't change their mind, why they couldn't do it. You know, the, the 14,000 scientists with the Al Gore and Inconvenient Truth and the, and the COP meetings and so forth, but they failed to stop them destroying themselves. Why was it that they couldn't? And I think it has to do with their being stuck in this high priest role of the dominant culture and making on the side, DARPA, you know, the internet was a web made for the military, right? And all the, and the AI is the military set funding and so on. And they think they're going to, and it's going to be funding, fueling, guiding autonomous weapons. You know, they're so scared of it. And um, meanwhile, they don't teach the large language model, even Greek, much less not Sanskrit or Tibetan. It's all English. It's all language of empire. That's what the large language model is. It's just English. Yeah. Not a penny spent on another language that maybe had a little different notion of subject and object <laughs> embedded in the language, you know, not a penny. And uh, and so, and but, but but I think, so So they do all these things like, I've been reading a wonderful book that you, I, I don't know if you know the book, you would love it. Dennis Overby, B-Y-E at the end, Overby, and it's called The Lonely Hearts of the Cosmos. And it's about the cosmologists, the astrophysicists, cosmologists, all the way back from Hubble, you know, before he had the telescope, you know, the name Hubble guy, Palomar, you know, or Sandage and all these people, and then Einstein, and then, and then it's, they, don't, they don't so much go into quantum so far. He is the, he was the, he is still the science reviewer for the New York Times, who therefore has interviewed Hawking, all of these people, you know, black holes and everything. And uh, and so he gives a, a, a history of their whole interaction with each other and how they fight over the theories and their points of interpretation. He does it taking them seriously and respecting them. But in a way, there's a sort of lightness about it where he shows their egos and their, their guesses and their hunches and and how that actually it's kind of they are the lonely hearts of the cosmos, you know, sitting up there in their observatories, you know, trying to figure out the Andromeda galaxy, the spin ratio, and and from that they're going to calculate this infinite universe. And in a way, it really shows you what a human enterprise it is. Actually, it's and it's and really it's really brilliant. The discovery of the whole dark matter and dark energy thing, which is really crazy, yeah. you know. All this exploration and all this, we know everything, and we are about to give you, we're the authorities on everything. We can tell you how to live and what to do, and we're going to solve it all, etc. Meanwhile, 97 to 99% of it we haven't seen yet. Yeah, or 95, but yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 even, it's, it's almost 99 from the fact the way that the 
what's what you what's visible yeah it's such a small percentage and some of them say it's a hundred times more it's the dark mass yeah yeah and meanwhile they haven't even thought and i want the nobel prize nobel prize for science because i'm going to ask you this question there are two types of invisible things what are the two dark is one of them what's the other one it's it's an invisible existing thing yeah okay well uh two types of invisible things uh one is dark matter and well dark anything dark we can't see right anything dark we can't see i guess anything clear totally transparent but they didn't transparency yeah Clear light, you know. Yeah, the clear it's light. Transparency. It's not light, actually. Right. Yes. It's analogy. It's analogy is dawn, twilight, pre-dawn, yeah. twilight. Right. And so it's beyond light and dark duality, in other words. So it's invisible, actually. Yeah. Right. But yet, it's not only ninety-nine. It's a hundred percent of everything. Right. Even matter, yeah. clear light, yeah. avoidance. Yeah. It's all the matter. It's the relativity of yeah. the full scale relativity. And I, I believe Einstein touches on it with this idea of. MC squared, you know, you know, this inconceivable number. What is it C squared anyway? What is C is the speed of light? Speed of light itself is a ratio. It isn't actually really just a, a, a number that it has, it deals with a certain quantity. It's a ratio between position and, you know, location and, and momentum. And to square it, it's like a fantasy, actually. 187,000 miles per second, but it isn't a regular number because it's a ratio. So if there's a time and a space element in it, and and then what? Then you couldn't go faster because that then the mass of the light becomes infinite. But you can't become infinite at a speed because you never reach infinity. So that means you, by become infinite means you have initially been infinite. You're simply open to what is actually always were. And light is like something coming, pinpricks coming through somehow from this infinity. And he touches that, I think, Einstein does. He touches that. You know, the idea of infinite mass. Now they are in the thing where there is no way, no nothing that confirms mass. You know, the whole thing about, um, you know, Higgs boson. It's just a double, triple inference of explosive fragments of this and that because of the other, and then the, but it's all surrounded by dark matter anyway. So don't don't really hold us to it, you know. So there's still a mystery, you know. There's yeah. still uncertainty, in other words. It's not like you have you. They finally caught the pin prick. That's the reality. The pin the pin prick reality is not there. X Y Z is not there. That's the whole point of it. It's a concept, right? So I so Einstein knew that. And uh, and uh, he used all the math, which is the mystical language of the high priest of mumbo jumbo language. But he knew that I, I heard I heard in the in the I haven't seen the movie yet, but I heard there's a wonderful remark in the movie. Uh, you know the a bomb guy, you know, and, uh, and uh, yeah, Oppenheimer, and that he and Einstein turned to each other in some case. But I I haven't seen it, so I don't know what the what the circumstance is. But that. They turn to each other and they say, well, you know, actually, I know that you agree with me and we both disdain mathematics. <laughs> I hope that's here and I hope I, I really I have to I can't wait to see the movie, but I have not been able to. I've been too busy being being wasting my time. So 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 anyway, <clears throat> we have to be 
if they weren't doing all that pretension, just about to calculate the age of it, and we're just about to listen to that bunch of irrelevant stuff when we're trying to stop, you know, these wars and these genocides and this horrible thing. And uh, we and the and the and the the planet side, you know, terror side that we're engaged in. And uh, if they were really putting their effort into what is relatively right in front of them, and that all of them were go- leaving Harvard and MIT and going and chaining themselves to Exxon doorway and to Har- and to White House doorway and to Senate and Congress doorways, and all of them were going with Bill McKibben for every country on the planet, there would be change, you know. Mm-hmm. They became existential scientists really saying, you have to stop, you people who are making money out of this self-destruction. You know, this, mm-hmm. we, this, That's what we're telling you, what you're doing, and you must stop this now. We're not just, uh, we're not sure that we, we'll, we'll make a miracle for you later and so on. We're not going to do that. Yeah. We're going to, you know, you we, we, we just have to stop now. You know, go, go to Dubai and say, it's great, you guys have some great buildings now tall buildings now you have to heat them some other way you know cool them and heat them some other way yeah but you yeah. can't have a lot of sunshine there <laughs> <laughs> well now they have the line they're building the line right. yeah so in part what this book is 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 a kind of um a, a revolution back toward philosophy and it is saying also I think because we're afraid that if we give up everything we're not going to be happy because we're kind of addicted to materialism in an important way. That's right. That's and you right. and you're saying in this book in part that that a if you really want happiness you if you turn away from all this confusion that 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 we're creating through science and technology and destruction you'll find actual bliss you can find actual joy and actual, also reality, that's what reality is that's what it is that's right reality yeah. is the plenitude it's a white hole i love carlo rovelli nowadays it's a white it's a giant white hole you know it's not a bunch of black holes leaking a little thermal radiation yeah. it's a giant white hole Clear light is it's it's the par- you take the paradox, you know, of energy, and you think of infinite energy, and if energy is infinite, it's not going to do anything, so it will be indiscernible because it on its own it's not doing anything. But then, amazingly, you can live. In other words, you feel you don't have quite enough. You need some food. You need some oxygen, and and it's just there. It's a plenum. It's there. Mm-hmm. So this terror of the universe. Is what and there and terror of death, and terror of everything is causing this. So scarcity mentality, and in the context of Buddhists, the reason I call it wisdom is bliss. Actually, my original working title was Buddhas have more fun. That was my original, <laughs> but I, I I dropped it at the editor's uh, with the editor's strong encouragement because the Western the modernist Western mind won't hear Buddha without thinking Buddhist. So they'll think it's some religious thing. Oh, yeah, we're the right religion. No. Buddhas have more fun. I mean, someone who's fully open-minded, who's not afraid of death, who thinks of life as, you know, amitayas, you know, infinite life. And there'll be more life. And if they're loving and happy and open-minded, then bliss will flood into them at death even. Like that poor guy, you know, Grasshopper. Remember Grasshopper? You know, the actor who played Grasshopper? You no, know, kung fu, kung fu, oh, kung fu. David kung Carradine fu. <laughs> strangled himself, strangled himself in a oh, hotel room in. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. In okay. Thailand, 
Yeah, because he was playing the Marquis de Sade thing of uh, getting near to have a bigger bliss. You know. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. He didn't know about tantric yoga. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So stupidly, and probably some of the girl there from the bar downstairs probably just, you know, mistimed it or something or tripped. Didn't unplug the rope in time, the velvet rope or whatever it was. Yeah. Poor guy. You know. So the point is, if you if reality is bliss. You know, then if you know reality, which you can, which wisdom does, non-conceptual, trans-conceptually know it, although wisdom leads to that trans-conceptual by getting the concepts all lined up into the great yaut, as they say in Zen, or into the prasangika madhyamaka, dialecticist centrist, as I have tried to translate it. And then an honor of, dia- of dialectics, I just said dialecticist, so like a dialectic, so not locked into that. They're capable of ordinary, you know, uh, autonomous reasoning or dogmaticist reasoning, and I call the uh, the, the Svartantrika's dogmaticist, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, you know, Don Lopez was a dogmaticist, and he was very annoyed with Chandra Kirti and me, and felt it was being unfair to the dogmaticists, you know, and they calling them dogmaticists. You know? But anyway, so that's that's modernism. That's modern Buddhism, but that's that's Buddhism. That's not modern Buddhism. That's modern science, Indian inner science in the modern way. And the Dalai Lama's thing that I'm doing now is, I think Patanjali is a Buddha. You know, Panini was a Buddha. You know, Socrates was a Buddha. So they they these higher intelligent beings came down as a team. Jesus is a Buddha. Moses was a Buddha. Eye for an eye, I mean, when they, if, you, if they take your eye by some meaning, you don't obliterate the, like uh, 10 million of them, you know. You just ask for an eye back <laughs> or a payment, you know, by an artificial intelligent eye or something. Whatever, you know. I'm just saying proportional. Even that's a, in the direction of nonviolence, of Ahimsa, you know. And it's wonderful. And uh, so, so anyway, that's the thing. But, but we have to get tougher with them. I think really, I can't take this Richard Dawkins business and you know Neil deGrasse and and and, and once they make the shift, like James Derlinger, did you ever run into James? He said some nice translations and essays about Chandrakirti and Basabandhu and this and that. I think so. And he's a, he was a tenured philosophy for many years at University of Iowa. I think okay. he's retired now, and uh, and he says in his in his. Introductions. I don't know if he's written a full autobiography. Yet. I've, I've lost such. I hope he's still alive. Because I haven't spoken to him in a decade. But he said that he was reluctantly a philosopher because he was under this Richard Rorty, the brilliant, wonderful Richard Rorty, but still announcing that philosophy is dead, metaphysics is dead, because they think of metaphysics as only some sort of absolutist thing, like Platonic thing. And so there can't be a relativist metaphysics. They think that's just somehow too loose, too hippie-ish or something, because they're stuck on some kind of absolutism. And and so then, you know, Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature or something. Remember that book, wonderful book by Richard Brody. And then after that, Contingency, Solidarity, and Irony. All we can do is be art critics, political critics, and, and sociological critics. We can't do reality. That's the scientists have taken over, you know. And uh, Derlinger felt that way as he once he got trained, but then he had to have a job. And when he discovered Buddhist philosophy, oh, wow, there's a reason now for philosophy. So he was reborn as a philosopher by discovering Basabandhu and uh, Nagarjuna and Dharmakirti, you know. Yeah. And it was just made his life meaningful. 
Yeah, and well, it was that way in, in the dominant culture origins, too, because Socrates thought he was doing something. He didn't think this was yes. random. It was about healing the culture, healing yourself, yes. finding true freedom and understanding reality. So it's, it's exactly. been, it was there, too. It's, we, it belongs to the all, all the cultures have this in one way or another. You know, it's yes. just now this, that we got cut off, like you said. It's because it's, it's – I always say it's much easier to kill a bird and cut it open and say, I know it, than it is to learn how to live well with that bird and understand understand really deeply what you share in your interwovenness. And then you also, it doesn't matter what kind of person you are, because I can be the worst person and I still can say, I know, because I have the science, as opposed to these traditions say, no, what you can know is going to depend on what kind of person you are. And then obviously, it's so it's that's obviously important, because it's what kind of world you're going to make. And so this is what you get when science gets cut off from philosophy, you get a world that's degraded, because no one thinks that they have to be a good person. That's right. You were yeah. that's right. And and you know, I was thinking, you know, and uh, and um, you're making me think that you know this whole thing we're having now with Trump and the and the and the the, the MAGA MAGA poor MAGA people and so forth, this post truth reality. Right. Yeah. So that means there's no that that's what you know. No, not, of course, Don Lopez is going to bury Buddha, the scientist, because it's all meaningless anyway, and uh, there's no truth anyway. And it's all whatever, you know, emptiness means it's all, he's, that's a great, they make emptiness agree with the idea that nothingness is really what it is, and it's all pointless and meaningless, so you can say anything and do anything, you know. Once, there's, once you have to go beyond concept in some way, then, then you, then you, um, then, then that means that concepts are all just irrelevant, you know. And that, that's, a, that's a subtlety that, they, that the dogmaticists miss, actually. They think you have to dogmatically attain nirvana, but you can't. Nirvana is just being open-minded in samsara, basically. <laughs> yeah, really. but you're really careful. And to, happy. And to happy. Work. And that's the point, you know. So yeah. the other reason for wisdom is bliss is I think that I, I think that our American Buddhists have put too much emphasis on the first noble truth because people have been ruled by fear for thousands of years, and so they think the way to get them going is to terrorize them more. <laughs> And they're going to suffer more, but then because they're already nihilists, they, you can't do that, and you, and and you they you can't terrorize them because nihilists has an has anesthesia waiting for them just by blowing their brains out. They don't need nirvana, so you can't scare them into really finding the love at the heart of reality, you know, the the the, the bliss and the joy and the love in reality. So so that's why there's the third noble truth, and that's the only one that's really real, is the third one. And, and it's therefore inviting and accepting. It's it's ready for everybody to realize it. So that's why I put wisdom as bliss, and that's a, and then I pushed it into the mold of the of the eightfold path, which is the dualistic, uh, you know, uh, you know, Theravada thing. You know, I never say hey, I don't like Hinayana expression, and I don't like lesser vehicle or something. I call it individual vehicle. Right. Because that's what it was for—to make the individual break out of the caste system and break out of the monism of Buddha's time, where they were the, the oppressed lower caste, but they were part of the god that they were—they were—they were, the, were the foot of the god, while the Brahmin was the mouth, you know. Yeah. And uh, he needed more individualism in the people they have there. Each one has their own godlike destiny, you know, which is the hallmark of Indian—the beauty of Indian civilization. That's the truly great thing, you know. 
yeah. of India. But you are really careful that the, we can't just get blessed out, that we got to learn. And the learning is a big part of the challenge for this culture, too, because we all just want to have, I'm just going to have the non-dual meditation, and I'm blissed out, and I won't have any thoughts. And we just think that it's thoughtlessness, and then I'm in bliss and I'm enlightened. But you're really careful to explain why we know you actually need learning. Yes. And otherwise, you're going to be possessed by concepts that you've pushed even further down into your unconscious. <laughs> really great. I really need you to, I need your help. What? 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 You explain it even better. You explain it better than That's me, your Bob. book. You did a great job. No, it's fantastic <laughs> because it's a common thing in America today because of the way we've so mishandled education, which is the Socratic and Buddha, Buddha's imperative with Socrates. Education yeah. is central. And in so. That's a great thing about it. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. need out the wisdom that's in the student. Yeah, that's it's, right. You're just replicating your own supposed intelligence. You lead their intelligence out, yeah. and then they get liberated, and then they do wonderful things. Yeah, that's really really important. Yeah, and uh, you know, as the Dalai Lama said, the only qualification of a teacher is that makes it. It's not some pedigree. It's not some Rinpoche. It's not some Roshi certificate. The only thing that speaks for a teacher is the effect on the students. And the and the and the opening of the students, uh, the flowering of the students' abilities. That's the only reference that a teacher can can mm. ask for, mm. and that's the only thing you should look for in a teacher is to, are their students flowering, you know? Yeah. Or are they just more oppressed and trying to repeat the teacher or something? Then yeah. that's about you know? Yeah. Well, I can say that uh, you have always helped me to flower, Bob Thurman, and I really, I thank you. I know I, you have to, uh, you have more teaching to do today, but I, I know that I've experienced flowering from your teaching. So a deep uh -huh. bow of gratitude thank you, to Nico. you. Thank you for being here. Are we here. done? Are we done? Oh, yeah. We and what I'm going to do is I'm going to sign off to thank all of you out there. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, reflections, if you have ever encountered Bob's teachings, you can share your experience. If you haven't, get out there. He's got so many resources online one thing, so one many thing, good books one, yeah wait, wait. we have to stop right now i'd like to go a little more i said one oh, other thing i do well, yeah touch. go i don't <laughs> i'm not going to stop you Bob. <laughs> i wanted to tell one anecdote okay and then make one point you know which which, which also it's good brownie points at the current moment and that is that when i wrote my first trade book you know like non-academic not only academic book based on many academic discoveries and things, but trying to make it popular. The inner revolution, you know, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and real happiness. And um, in that one, at one point, I, I elaborated the concept of cool heroism. So, I mean, a kind of heroism where you would die rather than kill somebody else, instead of hot heroism where you're trained in the military to sacrifice your life when you're enraged and in order to take some other life. And so then people were saying to me, somebody interviewed me in, the, in doing those days, there were such thing as a book tour. And uh, they said, well, where's all these cool heroes? You mean Jesus or Buddha or some of the Socrates or what is all the cool heroes? And uh, I was almost stuck, you know, for a second. You know? And then I had a flash in my mind of uh, many family situations, both birth family and current and, and at that time, current family. That was 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, there's tempers going on between brothers, father and son. You know, the males are at it, you know, saying nasty things to each other or even pummeling a little. And who's in the middle of it? The woman, the sister, the mother. Like, you didn't mean that, dear. No, don't say that. No, don't. 
and getting pummeled in the middle, you know, and often, you know, and many families, you know, uh, too many. And then I went, so then I said, okay, 50% of humanity are the cool heroes, I said. 50%. I, it, so that came up out of desperation. <laughs> and, and the women, in other words, you know, and like today, Somebody who said, I, I, I handed it to her, although I'm not into splitting the liberal vote at this, this dire moment in America, but I do love what she said the other day. What's her name? You know, the, the wonderful female candidate who trying to get on voting lists. Um, you know, the, the course in Miracles League. Marianne Williamson. Yeah, yeah. She said 72 wars on the planet right now. People being killed, mile a minute, 72 places. Not one started by a woman. She'd say, "Yeah, not one of them started by a woman." Yeah, and uh, you know, there's not one woman in Netanyahu's insane cabinet. There's not one woman in Hamas's insane thing. The Ayatollah is killing the women in Iran who pulled the trigger there. You know, and told the Hezbollah and the Hamas people to go commit suicide. You know, because that'll provoke the crazy fringe government that Netanyahu is hiding in the, from his own court cases, and they'll go nuts. You know. And uh, and by the way, do you know October seventh? Do you know what what it is that date? You mean this year? October seventh. Just yeah. now we had the terrible yeah. Hamas yeah. attack on October seventh. Okay. A horrendous thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you know what? What another interesting point about that day? I don't think I'm thinking of it right now. No. Tell it's me. Putin's birthday. Oh. Huh. And that's all I said. I'll say about that. No. <laughs> Oh, never mind. I won't, go, I won't go politics. But my point is, karma is a Darwinian theory where the mind is involved. Yeah. And I just want to mention that for this, your listeners, you know, that that um, uh, mind and cosmos by the NYU philosopher who challenges the biologists that they've got to bring the mind back into evolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of just genes, you know, a sure. mechanistic thing. Yeah. Because they, they won't get there otherwise. And he has really great, very conservative arguments on that. Yeah. Uh, and his name is fleeing my 82 year old brain. But but I know him really well. But he's a great philosopher. Well, even wrote, Bateson. Bateson already where, talked about that, right? Gregory Bateson decades ago was saying that evolution, yeah, yeah, but evolution is, is a, a mental process. Time. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, but I'm saying it's not new. This is the thing where mind no, is involved. No, I know, but he, yeah. that mind cosmos is quite a good one. Okay, and I'll read sense, it. Yeah, and he says that why they're afraid of it and they won't do it is they think God will come back and the Inquisition will come back. Yeah, once you have. Mind. But the point is, karma theory is a is a Darwinian evolutionary theory with mind engaged with matter. Yeah, and it isn't some God controlling it. It's each all the mutual intersubjective minds. Having an influence upon it is being being a factor to be considered, mm-hmm. which then makes ethics evolutionary action. Mm-hmm. Where when you're when you're generous, then this changes your shape of your life. Yeah, it, 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 and and also it connects to the idea that the individual inherits some of the benefit of the fittest becoming more fit in in life after life. It begins to make. It begins to bring the infinity of lives, the multiple multiplicity of lives, into biological reality, yeah. rather than sort of weird fantasy woo-woo thing, you know, the table moving, you know, uh, voices in the dark, woo-woo thing, which is what they try to pretend it is. 
it actually becomes empirical, like the conservation of energy is what I'm saying. Yeah. So and within that, then, the higher form of the human species is the female one. And there's no accident that Sophia is a goddess and Paramita is a goddess. That's right. And I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. And so the wisdom side, uh, the it's like the dangerous goddess. <laughs> You're calling it dangerous wisdom. Uh, right. I consider ignorance more dangerous than wisdom anyway. anyway. But yeah. the point is, the dangerous female is important. We need those females now to save this planet. And well, the we, greatest we, threat to these, the greatest threat to the psychosis that holds us is wisdom. That's why it's dangerous and why they push it away. You, you, if, you're, right. if you're caught in it, that's, it seems dangerous. So we have to oppress philosophy at every step of the way. So there's yes. a, the idea is that it's dangerous because it feels like, and also it was to honor Buddha as the spiritual surgeon general. I say he's the only philosopher yes. I know of who put the spiritual surgeon general's warning that says, handle this like a poisonous snake, because if well, you don't yes. handle it, it's... Right. Although I just want to say about that, that... Yeah. Problem that the Nagarjuna says, you know, misconceived emptiness is like grabbing a poisonous snake in the wrong way, yeah. or using a scientific a mantra, yeah. scientific spell in the wrong way, and so on. And yes, that's true. Mm. But the danger he was referring to is the confusion, mixing of voidness with nothingness. Yeah, so nihilism is the danger, yeah. and that's why I don't hesitate to, to teach about emptiness to anybody yeah. in, our, in our dominant culture. Yeah, because who is educated our dominant culture because they're already gripped by the poison of nihilism, right? And it's meaningless. And this, you know, like the chairman of the philosophy department of Columbia, I heard him go on and on in the dialogue we were at. I had to restrain myself. He's going, "This is maturity. You have to accept it's all meaningless. You have to accept there's no point to it. You have to accept that it's an accident. You have to accept random this. I mean, on and on and on." That nihilism would just be the way of being a real person. Yeah. And it's in total, it makes you into a psychotic, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's really wrong. You know? And we have, to be, we have to deal with it. And women know that because they have to deal with what's right in front of them. And they know that we all do. And they try to get these guys cycling off in their mathematics and cycling off with their vengeance and cycling off with their, their narcissistic, narcissistic weird thing that they have to be practical and, you know, we're going to have breakfast. We're going to have breakfast after that. So don't destroy all the, all the, all the chickens, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> okay. I love so it. I just have a plug for the women. So I as like you keep that. it, I'm I totally full. Appreciate okay? it. I appreciate it. And thank all you right. so much. Nicholas. Thank I'm you. Delighted. And thanks to all of you, my just friends. Have another talk. Yeah. I have to write a book. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do it. I'll, I'll or I'll write one, and you can come and we'll talk about it. Okay, you do right. it. Do you have a book? Do you have a book? I'll do a podcast with you. Yeah, well, I have two that I'm working on. I'm trying to get them out. So yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. Well, you're working draft, you want to deal with it? I'll do. I'll, I'll do. I'll do a podcast with you. All I'll right, do. let's do it. Okay. Well, that sounds really. Good. I love you know what I, you know. One thing they won't do, huh. they won't discuss with me. There are different translators conferences. Yeah, they have the second thing that. Everybody has to choose their own word. We're not going to have any agreed-upon terms. That's really stupid. Yeah. They, of course we can agree. We can, you know, nobody has the word because translation is never perfect and it's always a changing thing. And when you translate something from one culture into another, it changes the culture Yeah. that you're going into. It's not like you're going to fit it into an existing culture. It's going to change the culture. 
Yeah. So then you have to look at resonances of words and how they might develop. It's like it's like grafting plants on each other. You know, it, it's like a experimental science like that. Yeah. It's not just fixed things. Some there is the ultimate word, and yeah. uh, so we we really need to discuss like Buddha. Is it a, is Buddhahood? It was Bodhi and awakening, or is it enlightenment, or can it be both, or what? Tibetans came up with both Sangye, and I'd love to have podcasts on that, for example. Oh, and yeah. but and you know, for example, and and get to convene people to discuss some of these terminologies. And, yeah, that would be great. And if oh, you have a work, a... if you have a working book, I'm sure it's fascinating. And um, just let me know when you want to try to do it. We'll do it. In yeah, I'm I know. A translators conference would be great, and it's so funny because of all philosophies, you would think that that Buddhist people influenced by Buddha Buddha's philosophical thinking would understand this interwovenness of the cultures yeah. and the translation, oh, like and the need for an ecology of mind to have that debate and discussion. Oh, and it's really surprising. Did you ever meet my friend Tom Cleary? I never met him, but of course I love I love his translations. They're so they're so wonderful. Oh, amazing! Did you did you ever try to read his entire Flower Ornament Sutra? You know what? I saw that you're doing it online. I, I I have it, and I've read a lot of it. And I I actually think I'm going to try to go through it with you. It sounds like a fun thing to do. You you it's did amazing. did you get through the whole thing? Yes, you did. Oh my god! Thirty seven different sessions. Thirty seven. I, I right. never dreamed it would be so extensive, but because I had read parts of it like that before. Yeah. But I got into the sort of incantatory and imaginative, imagination stimulating aspect of it, which because it's like a different type of thing. It's like a vivid. It's like it's like abstract expressionist words. You know, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's a, such a great sutra. It's so incredible. Yeah. And I did it for people because I, I know I know it's very hard to read when you normally are reading something to extract meaning, and you know you doing like that. Whereas this is painting with words, yeah. and so you, you, I wanted people to have to listen in a hot tub or something, you know, or sitting you know, or when jogging or in the zone, you know. Yeah. So and I, I want to honor him because he was so assaulted and so dishonored badly or disrespected. I should put you can't dishonor such a great being. But he was so disrespected by academics in the East Asian field for so many years. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I managed to get him a couple of NEH grants early on, and um, because he was from Harvard and something like that. And uh, But then, you know, they, he didn't do footnotes, and then he did so much that they were so jealous. And it was so good what he did uh, with it, with uh, all those texts, you know, that, uh, that uh, they were just really mean to him, and they denied him support, you know, always, you know, in a very bad way. Mm. So that's why I, I pledged to do it. And I want to try to make, I'm going to get rid of the visual and try to make a, a long uh, audible out of it eventually. Oh, yeah, well, that's easy. They can yeah, the that, I asked off. the publisher to fund a, a studio to do it as an audible, but they wouldn't do it. So, um, but I'm going to now take the soundtrack off this and then I'll make some deal with them. Yeah, yeah. Right. He has a beautiful wife. I don't know how she's doing. Um, financially, and I'm sure she's still there. And I'd like to have her have the royalty of it. Oh, that's and wonderful. I love the guy. He was uh, My daughter fell in love with him when she was like four years old. Oh. She did. She oh. wouldn't come out of the closet to have dinner unless he would ask her to come out. He was visiting with me when we were starting working on that flower ornament together with multiple languages, you know. But we didn't have the funding to continue with it together. But And then he just did it himself. He did it in an unheated apartment over a garage in Kobe 
where the only heat was under the table, an electric thing, yeah. coil in there. And so he would his fingers would freeze after a certain amount of typing or whatever, and then he'd have to hold it on the table, and then wow. he would do it. It's a beautiful book. Anybody, so I've, I've recommended it before as, as maybe the most psychedelic uh, text, oh, and as a beautiful, it's, it's just it's, so... And you know, when I started doing it, and then people got the, say the word went around a little bit, that I, not hugely, but a little bit, somebody wrote me from Berkeley, and they said, you know, in the 60s, or what, no, 70s or something, I read it aloud three times. I couldn't stop. <laughs> I, I have that email somewhere, but I never haven't found the guy because I was in during COVID, so I couldn't, uh, couldn't travel. But uh, uh, I said, I wrote back, did you record it? No. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, yeah. great talking to you. Dedicate so the merit. May everybody become Manjushri modern or pre-modern or post-modern, whatever it is, as soon as possible, so they'll all be happy. Okay? I love it. Thank you for dedicating the merit. I appreciate it, Bob. Take care of all of you Thank out you there, are. my friends. And Real we'll pleasure. See you next time. Nice.